Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Salty Pastor. Today is the beginning of a new series called What Would Jesus Say? Mm -hmm. In three and a half weeks, we're going to be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we thought it would be important to look at what his resurrection is actually saying to the world, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, we're going to ask three questions over the next three weeks. What would Jesus say to our society? Mm -hmm. What would Jesus say to our political leadership? Mm -hmm. And finally, what would Jesus say to you? My name is Jesse Mayer. I'll be your host. And we can't do the Salty Pastor podcast without our own Salty <laughs> Pastor, the Salty Dog himself, Dr. <laughs> Douglas Peak. So I'm a Salty Dog now. <laughs> I'm, I'm mixing it up. I'm mixing it up. Well, greetings, everyone. I know how many people are using this podcast to grow spiritually. I know a number of people who say, man, this is how I'm going to just do my Bible study each week and my application to life. So we're going to be returning to our normal format, and that is uh, we do in-depth Bible study on Tuesday, and then on Thursday we do an in-depth application. Now, if you're just starting off and you want to kind of track with it as well, you can just listen to the messages on Sunday because the message is kind of a compilation of everything thing that is designed to go out to as many people as possible and help them grow in their faith. So that's kind of the format we use, and we're going to be returning to that right now. So let's set the stage for our study for the next three weeks. Mm -hmm. um, even people who deny everything about Jesus um, are unable to deny an immutable fact, and that's that first he was an actual person. Actual person. Who lived at the time the Bible says he lived, mm -hmm. and this is a historical fact that's been confirmed by Roman historians. Yes. Second, he's the most seminal historical figure in the history yeah. of the world, yep. simply meaning that his life has had uh, the greatest impact on humanity out yep. of anybody. Yep. And the final thing is that the evidence of his resurrection is overwhelming mm -hmm. and any fair-minded person investigating the facts comes to the same conclusion. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what we're going to be doing is looking at the impact of his resurrection on humanity because the resurrection is actually a statement from God to us. And it was a powerful statement. And when we understand the statement, what this statement means as well, we will see the impact of this statement on human beings all throughout history and in your life today. And that's why this series is What Would Jesus Say? What does his resurrection say to our society, to our political class and our political leaders, to me as an individual? So we're going to dig into the resurrection of Jesus and some of the specific things it says to a world that is seeking for answers. So we're going to be studying the book of Acts. Is that for the whole series or are we just for this uh, portion of the series we're in Acts? Yeah, yeah. We're going to try to stick with Acts as much as possible. But, you know, the resurrection is say, is in, in, in just cost. about every single book, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you, could, you know, we could go to any book and talk about the resurrection. Perfect. So in Acts, um, as many of you... Uh, no, the first four books in the New Testament are mm -hmm. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yep. These are biographies on the life of Jesus, and mm -hmm. all of them conclude in his resurrection yep. from the dead. Mm -hmm. The fifth book in the New Testament is the book of Acts, officially titled the Acts of the Apostles. Mm -hmm. um, but that would be a long title. And <laughs> yeah, so everybody we, just says we, Acts. We shorten that. Yep. Um, and it's a historical account of what happened after Jesus rose from the dead. It mm -hmm. covers about a 30-year period of time. Yes. And uh, so about 33 AD to 63 mm -hmm. AD, roughly, yeah, and it's right? Yeah, it's a super great book. Uh, and it is in the time period 
where we see the implications of the resurrection seeded into the world that ultimately changed the course of all human history. Now, it goes without saying, you know, and that is, is that it's the very power of God manifested in the resurrection that, uh, of Jesus Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost to the church that changed the course of human history. So it was an act of God that came into history, uh, which is, is pretty significant. But the next question then is, what were the vessels or the structures or the forms where the power of God was manifested? And the first structure or form was the apostles themselves, right? They stood up on the day of Pentecost. They proclaimed the gospel and thousands and thousands of people came to believe in and follow Jesus Christ. And his basic appeal was Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And so uh, that's where it started. But then the apostles during this 30, 40, 50 year period after the resurrection, they all passed away. So the real question is, is what was the actual thing that kept it growing, transformational, changing culture, changing the world, changing societies uh, and spreading continuously throughout all of this time? And the answer to that is because the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a claim of truth. So it was a truth claim. And it wasn't just the truth claim Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It was a truth claim that actually transformed the way everyone looked at the reality in which they lived. And so it redefined what it meant to be a human being. And this is commonly what scholars call a biblical world view. And that is, is that the resurrection redefined reality, redefined what we knew about God and redefined what it means to be a human being. So that's that's a really big deal. We're going to dig into that. Uh, we're going to go to Acts chapter four today. And before uh, we read the text, I want to set the stage of what's happening here. And that is Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And then 50 days later uh, is when the day of Pentecost happened, which was the birth of the church. This was right after he ascended into heaven as the Holy Spirit came down. This is in Acts chapter two. Then what happened is uh, over the next year, two years, they would go to the Temple Mount and or the Temple Courts. It's the Temple Mount today. Let me clarify that. And this is a massive space. OK, when you go to the Temple Mount today, you could probably put anywhere from six to eight football fields up there. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's massive. I mean, it's just absolutely massive. Until you walk it, you don't realize how big it really is. And on there was the temple. And so these were open courts. And so you could have tens of thousands of people. You could have 100,000 people up there without any problem at all. And what would happen is the apostles would be teaching in pockets because everybody would go up there. And what happened is they started to make these truth claims about the resurrection and that really upset the religious leaders and so they started to take action so this could have been six months or a year or even two years after the resurrection of jesus christ so uh let's read the text of peter's testimony before the religious courts in jerusalem mm -hmm. um we're in acts chapter 4 verse 1 
Um, and it says, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in prison until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be around 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem, and Annas, the high priest, was there, and Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly descent. Mm -hmm. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for, the benef for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among mankind by which we must be saved. Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Yeah, so what happened is, if you read chapter 3, is uh, Peter and John are going up to the temple mount or a complex to pray and a beggar's there and Peter says silver and gold have I none but such as I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ stand up and walk and so he does that so this was a, a person who was paralyzed for decades and decades and now he's walking around and people are like oh my gosh this is a miracle you know and so Peter then speaks to the onlookers and he preaches to them and uh, that's why in verse seven, the high priest says to Peter, or to, he, he basically arrests them. They lay hands on them and haul them before the court. And they say, by what power or what name have you done this? And he's referencing the healing of the, beg the paralytic, the beggar, and he's uh, referencing the claims that he's making, these truth claims. And so the truth claims that that he actually made start in Acts 3, uh, verse 19, which says this, Repent then and turn to God. This is what he's telling all the crowd. So that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So this is a big deal because what he's saying is, you know, sacrifice and ceremony is not going to wash not, your sins not away. Doing it anymore. Yeah, he goes, repent and turn to God. He says, and then verse 20, he says, and that he may send the Messiah who is appointed for you, who is Jesus. Heaven must receive him. In other words, he's gone into heaven until the time comes for God. And this is what really upset people. For God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. So what he's basically saying is this, is that Jesus is the absolute truth of how God is going to restore everything. Not just Jews, you know, not just Gentiles, but everything. You know, back to the Garden of Eden. This is going to be completely restored. And then, you know, this is why then Peter goes a little bit further after they um, make this claim uh, in front of the high priests in the court. And then he says, 
He goes, there is salvation in no one else. Verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. This is another massive truth claim. He says, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among mankind by which we must be saved. So these were pretty massive claims. So what were the actual claims and why were they so significant? Okay, well, basically that first one, Jesus is the Messiah. And so what were the Jews waiting for? They've been waiting for a Messiah. Yeah, for thousands of years, they've been waiting for a Messiah. And they basically, Peter says, this is him. He came, you killed him. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. He rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. Bam, there you go. (laughs) Done deal. But here, what's interesting is even more, and the reason why the religious uh, rulers were so bothered is because they were under the oversight or under the control of the Roman Empire. And in the, the Roman Empire uh, had a really unique pluralistic approach. And that was just like today, uh, the world in which Jesus came was pluralistic. Today we are pluralistic. And you could basically in the Roman Empire, this is how they did it. You could believe anything you wanted to believe. Everybody, we're pagans, first of all. Everybody has their own gods. Every house has their own gods. Every region has their own gods. You can have any gods you want. You can give them all the stuff you want. As long as you say Kaiser Curios, which was a Greek form of Caesar is Lord. So you had to worship Caesar as one of the gods. So what they were saying is that you could believe whatever you wanted as long as the absolute authority was Caesar. And what happened is Christians, first and foremost, became very unpopular with the Jewish leadership because they said that Jesus is the Messiah and that means he's God. So that really bothered them. And then it also bothered them because it would put them crossways with the Roman Empire. And then the Roman Empire, of course, got crossways with Christians and persecuted them for 300 years because they could only say Christos Curios, Christ is Lord. They wouldn't say, you know, Caesar was Lord. And what this meant was that uh, the Judaist, the, the Judaizers and Judaism persecuted the early Christians, but it was minor compared to what the Romans did to Christians. They were basically making enemies on all sides with these truth claims. Yeah, and so everybody hated them because they just didn't make a claim of truth like, you know, brand muffins are good for your digestive health. That's not what they were saying. (laughs) They were saying these were ultimate claims. This is the ultimate truth of the reality in which you lived. And that's why these claims were so significant. Well, and you said that the 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 Judaizers were mm-hmm. pretty minor compared to how infuriated the Romans were. But yeah. how upset uh, were the religious leaders about these truth claims? And like, what were the long term effects of these truth claims? Uh, did the apostles and the followers of Jesus soften to kind of try to make nice with these guys, <laughs> or 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 make it a little bit more palatable? Um, what what was the kind of flow of that whole process? Yeah, well, that probably you, happened over a couple years. Or yeah, well, many, many years. years. Yeah, <laughs> I, well, actually, it's just the opposite. You think you know they're making truth claims, they're getting arrested, they're getting thrown in jail, they're getting their pro- they start getting their properties. The the persecution from the Jewish religious leaders starts to really 
grow. So as you continue to read in the book of Acts all the way up to chapter 7, what you see is these religious leaders get more and more angry because they became more and more clear about their truth claim. They didn't soften them at all. They sharpened it. They sharpened it. And so these religious leaders started to persecute the church severely. They even took one of the early deacons, Stephen, and they stoned him to death. And so in chapter 7, we see what is known as, in the first few verses, the great diaspora. And that's Greek for dispersion. And uh, basically... After a number of years of steady growth in the city of Jerusalem, you saw the numbers, you know, on the day of Pentecost, thousands of people came to know the Lord in this, you know, 5,000 men. At the Temple Mount. At the Temple Mount, yeah. So, I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of people in the city of Jerusalem are becoming followers of Christ. And, of course, that's upsetting the balance of power. And so what happens is that they decide, well, we're going to persecute these Christians. The Jewish leadership does. And this is actually when we're first introduced to Saul, who becomes Paul the Apostle. But Saul was a part of this group, and they would arrest people. They would have them whipped and beaten. They would seize their businesses and their property. And so it was pretty nasty what was going on. And so everybody fled. All these Christians that were there fled. And what happened is, you know, you have to understand the economy of the time. And it would be kind of like this, is that a lot of people had uh, homes, uh, property out in, you know, the area, like, you know, because it was primarily an agrarian style economy. And so people are producing Uh, food they're producing goods and it's usually out there and then you would come to jerusalem to enact business you know and trade and do all that kind of stuff and so it was usually either the head of the household or it was a firstborn or you know this type of thing and so when the persecution started all these people said "Mm, i'm getting out of here and they went back to their their homes out in the countryside countryside, and all all the different areas and regions all over the place because jerusalem was truly a hub and so people would come from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away to transact business and so what happened is this this basically drove everybody out and you would think that when they went out to their homes and families and all of these uh, the outskirts and across the roman empire people would soften their claims but Uh, They didn't do that. As a matter of fact, they became more bold in the proclamation that Jesus Christ was Lord. And so people started listening and people started really grabbing on. And this is why, you know, Christianity has always grown dramatically among the common man. The, the common man. The common man is, the, the, is the, the man and the woman and the family that produce things. They, they produce enough to take care of themselves, and then they produce things for other people to transact business. This is what we call the common man. They don't sit around, you know, because they have loads of money eating grapes. They're and, not legislating yeah, and doing all the Yeah, they're not doing They're just working. They just want to live life and enjoy life, their family, and, and they want to do well. So the common man, and so people really resonate. They didn't like the pluralism of the society. And so they re- that really resonated strong with them. And this is what ultimately led to 300 years of Roman persecution because they didn't soften the message. The Jewish persecution, as I said before, was pretty minor that drove them out in the great diaspora. But then the Roman persecution was just brutal. And the primary reason that they suffered so distinctly under Romans is because they refused to say 
uh, Kaiser Curios. They just refused to say it. As a matter of fact, when you read about martyrdom of many of the early followers of Christ by Rome, the main thing was, is they would say, all you have to do is recant that Jesus is Lord and say that Caesar is Lord and we'll let you go. And they refused to do it. And so they died for their faith. Hmm. So Kaiser Curios is the, is uh, Caesar is king. What would Christos Christos okay Curios okay. Christos okay and so you know what's here here's a little little factoid is this is Latin so uh or, well Curios well, is, is the Greek form Greek. Okay. and so Greek influenced Latin a lot and then Latin kind of took off because this was the beginning of the Pax Romana Christ came right at the earliest part of the Pax Romana was the glory of Rome Right. For and during the glory of Rome, when all Romans were getting wealthy and doing really, really well, they were super, super wealthy, more wealthy than and affluent than ever before. They were persecuting Christians uh, tenaciously. Hmm. So it's really interesting. But what uh, what's interesting is this is where the ichthus came from. You see the ichthus, the ichthus, the ichthus is the, the fish. You know, and what would happen is if you want to know if somebody else was a believer, you'd go up and you'd write a curve in the sand. And then if they completed the un, the curb, which was a fish. Oh, like the bumper sticker fish yeah, is the, the one Yeah, the bumper sticker okay, fish. Yeah, okay. that's called uh, the ichthus. Okay. Because the word in Greek, ichthus, means fish. So, but what it did is it became a cro- an acrostic for Jesus Christ, Son of God. So Jesus is Lord. Is sure. ba- so when it was an acrostic for that, the okay. Greek word for fish. And so you would draw a line in the sand. And if someone came up and then they drew the under part of the line, you knew that they were saying Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord. Interesting. And so All that's right. how they knew each other. And that, of course, you know, there's dirt everywhere. You just draw just it with your foot. Just draw it with your foot. And you could just be yeah. standing there and if somebody walks up and yeah. completes it. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So there's, that's kind of the little factoid of that. Love it. Yeah. Well, why do you think people have such problems with the truth claims of Jesus and his early followers? I mean, uh, very early on, it was pretty obvious that he didn't yeah. come to start a new religion. That wasn't his. That wasn't what he was going around <laughs> proclaiming. Right. Um, there were Gentiles and Jews, and there were no spelled out religious ceremonies that you had to do to follow him. Yes. Um, it was all just about faith, belief, and transforming lives, right? Mm-hmm. So why are people so bent out of shape over these truth claims? <laughs> well, I think primarily it's due to power. You, you see the re, re, Jewish religious leadership was attempting to control the populace uh, in order to reap the benefits of the covenant. See, they, they thought, well, if we can just get everybody 100% compliance with what we believe the covenant is, that will allow us then to be set free from Rome and have a theocracy again. But that's because they, they, they had a, a fundamental misunderstanding of the point of the old covenant. You see the Jewish law. And that was, it was a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus Christ says, I didn't come to... Uh, get rid of the law, but to fulfill it, you know, people misunderstand what he meant when he said that all the time. Some people take that, oh, well, we're supposed to follow the Jewish Old Testament law. And you still have uh, subgroups or denominations of Christianity in America uh, uh, that won't worship on a Sunday. I actually, my old pastor that I grew up with, yeah. uh, right after I moved away for college, he he changed, he went into that subgroup and started us a different church because that was his belief was that yeah this was the real this was the the real way or the the yeah, so enlightened you, yeah. way i yeah. guess yeah that 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 you had to worship on 
you know, Saturday, Saturday because that was the Jewish Sabbath in order to honor God. So they, they don't understand what what Jesus meant when he said fulfillment. And you really have to read Paul to understand deeply what Jesus meant. And we believe, number one, that Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit, but also Paul w sat with all of the apostles, you know, Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, Thaddeus, uh, the other Judas, all of them uh, sat with them and and went into, you know, they really picked apart what Jesus said. You know what I'm saying? You know, I always kind of I, I want to always wonder what that first meeting where Paul comes in <laughs> yeah. to like talk with the disciples and he's like so i know i kind of messed up for a little while yeah. like what's that like awkwardness yeah, of that really. first conversation like i want to know what that is yeah. but sorry that's a little <laughs> off topic it's just something i've always kind of envisioned because it's yeah. like it's never really mentioned but you're not you know that when that first happened there yeah. was probably a little bit of well like, at first they wouldn't <laughs> see him you know no he's like ah, it's a trap i'm not gonna go meet <laughs> him gonna, anywhere yeah, hey i want you to go down and meet saul at the market square by paul now <laughs> yeah. He's a nicer guy. Uh, uh, I don't know. You know, he might be a spy. So, and that's why Barnabas was so important because Barnabas basically vouched for him, you know, <laughs> took him in there and did all this stuff. But uh, long and short of it is, I think that uh, the Jewish leadership was tr attempting to main maintain control. And then Rome, of course, was trying to maintain its power. Uh, it, it was so big and they were extremely pluralistic. Uh, another way of saying it is they were very diverse. They had massive diversity of But diverse in a bad way. <laughs> so, well, I mean, just in a, uh, let's start with a benign way. In other words, a way that doesn't matter. And that is, is that they had diverse ethnicities. They had people from North Africa all that were uh, of Nubian descent, you know. Right. You had people that were uh, Persian. You had okay. Aramaic people or Arabs. You had people that were Spanish uh, you had people that were uh, would eventually become Italian. You had Greeks. So you had eth these ethnic d uh, divisions were really big, right. you know, and very pronounced. You know, you you knew a Greek person when you saw them. You knew an Arab, you knew a Persian, right. you knew a North African, you knew a Spaniard and so forth. And uh, what happened is Rome ruled them all. And so it and that was, was kind of what brought them together, right? Because Rome was conquering all of these different places. Yeah, yeah, that's and how they that's, brought them all together. They, they weren't just like traveling there of their own accord. It was right. mostly because Rome had conquered them, conquered them, yeah. and brought them together. You know, and, and Rome's deal was basically this: they'd march their le uh, legions into your area, and then they would say, "Well, you can become a part of Rome. Pay us a high tax. We'll let you govern yourself. We'll let you have your own religion." And they'd say. Yeah, we don't like you on our soil. So what's our other option? We'll kill all of you. I'm going to take option one. <laughs> so option one became very popular. <laughs> and that's kind of how it, it worked out for them. And what happened is because of all this diversity of, of uh, ethnicity, they had a diversity of languages, all different types of languages. And so this is why Latin became so powerful is because they said, well, you can speak your own language, but everybody has to know Latin. And so everybody had to learn Latin because that was the official language of the Roman Empire. You, they had all these different cultures. And because they were pagan, they basically said, look, that's fine. You can keep your own gods. However, you must say that Kaiser, the emperor, is curious, is lord over all. 
So he has to be Lord over all. Now, the only people who wouldn't do it were Jews. And because they said, no, Yahweh or Jehovah is God. And what they allowed them a special dispensation. The Roman Empire did that. And it wasn't a really, it is more of like a, a uh, just kind of detente. It was just like, we don't like it, but we'll tolerate it. And the it's reason why. It's not worth the fight. <laughs> it's not worth the fight in, in, to subdue them. But also because the Jews had such a high level of education and they were, you know, so they were administrators throughout all the Roman Empire, you know. They wanted to use them for their yeah, higher education They needed skills, that so. and for teaching their children. I mean, so, there were, so they, they made a kind of a special dispensation for them. So initially, the Romans thought that Christianity was just another sect, another subgroup of Judaism. So they didn't care. But then in 70 (laughs) A.D., they figured out that Christianity and Judaism weren't the same. And then that's when the persecution, they really cracked it down. So the, the, the fact that they were so diverse ethnically in language and culture is the only way to get all of these people to operate together is you required them to say that the emperor was lord over everyone else. So the the diversity wasn't necessarily the issue. It was right. just it was okay. How I, they chose to bring chose unity. To bring, a, mm-hmm. bring unity quote unquote, right? Yes. But I mean kind of what you're describing it sounds like what's kind of happening today in our world <laughs> i have yeah. started to realize so do you want to <laughs> yeah. expound on that well there there's a lot of similarities <laughs> we'll dig into it more on on thursday but number one is our society is extremely pluralistic and the emphasis today is on diversity and so then the second thing is is because of this our society has become extremely skeptical of truth claims unless you buy into its truth claim and this is what the biggest shift in american society people go okay how come people could argue and fight and and have enemies you know when you look at the first two you know 150 years of america right and and not get along but then always come back together right well because they america held to an external truth claim and even though they never really you know, so the first 150 years was an attempt to live up to that, right? Right. And one of the external truth claims was all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with unalienable rights. And so what they did is they wrote that down and they said, this is what we're going to aspire to. And the first thing they realized is that, uh, yeah, this means ethnically everybody. And so even from day one, before the Constitution was signed, there was an abolition movement in the North. And the abolitionist movement was all pushed by Christians, 100 percent. There was no secular abolitionist movement. There was a secular uh, pro-slavery movement. And what happened in America is that people tried to use the Bible to justify slavery. But this was an abysmal attempt because the theological weight was all with the abolitionists and they ultimately won, you know, right. uh, even though America had to go to war. And it was like, well, how did the Civil War, how were we able to become back together as a nation was because people held this ex- external claim. Right. 
Well, today, our society is now skeptical of truth claims, and people wonder why our society is different than it was, you know, 100 years ago. And that's because our society is skeptical of any truth claim that's external or objective. So there's nothing to bring them back together because there's no truth. It's just you're all Mm -hmm. space dust in an accident with no real thought. So what's the point of coming back together? Yeah, you know, and I I mean, I was just looking. we'll, We'll dig into this, but I was looking at this chart. You know, I'll show it to you. Here and look at uh, from the 1900s all the way up to about 1970 is o- o- over 95 percent between 95 and 99 percent of all Americans were uh, affiliated with a faith in God. Right. 95 percent all the way up to 1970. So and so what's happened in just the recent is now, according to this. Yeah, it's dropped to under 70 percent. So so what's happening is that movement of we don't believe in any truth claims. And the the primary way in which this flows out, we'll talk more about it on uh, Thursday when we have some more time, is that Christianity is considered the number one problem, not because you have the freedom to believe whatever you want. You see, it's like, well, fine, if you want to believe in Jesus, that's cool, you know, as long as it's private and it's not in the public square. The problem is, is that Christianity makes absolute truth claims. There's no way around it, you know. And that ruffles people's feathers. Oh, boy, does it (laughs) ruffle feathers like no tomorrow. So do we soften the claims to be palatable to the world or do we act like the first century church and say we're willing to die for these truth claims? So what are we talking about on Thursday, just as a, a, a quick uh, teaser? A teaser. Well, what we're going to do is we're going to just talk about uh, the problem with skepticism towards truth claims. And what I'm going to talk about is that a lot of people spend all their time, because we're a deconstructionist society, of attacking Christian truth claims. They spend all their time attacking that, attacking that, attacking that. Well, no one's skeptical of their own skepticism. And so what happens when you get rid, rid of truth claims. What do you end up with? And history teaches a very loud truth answer to what that is. And it's not hard to find. Well, I'm excited to hear about it. Thank you guys so much for joining us today uh, here on the Salty Pastor. Make sure you leave a comment, uh, like, and subscribe if you're on our YouTube channel. And we will see you on Thursday here on another episode (laughs) of the Salty Pastor with Dr. Douglas (laughs) Peak. Goodbye.